Let's turn to Romans chapter 16. Believe it or not, I don't know how long it's been, but it's been quite a while. We have, uh, we're going to finish up the book of Romans today. And uh, the book of Romans has been a great book. It's something that uh, no matter how much time we spend in it, we probably haven't spent enough time in it to get everything that God has for us. But uh, we did what we could do with the understanding that God has given us. So today we're going to look at the last chapter of the book of Romans, and we'll close it out today. By now, you Bible students, those of you who uh, really want to learn the Bible, you should have this book pretty well outlined. I told you Thursday night how that uh, I have been up to this point. You may have not been noticing it because we haven't been focusing on that directly. But from this point on, now that we're into our Thursday night series on how to divide up the Bible and get your Bible in the right order as far as the notes in it, you're going to uh, be able to understand how... uh, uh, the book of Romans has is, is been outlined for you. Book of Romans and its understanding of it, as far as I am concerned, is absolutely essential uh, in the Christian life. It's one of those books that you simply have to understand it and get it down. There's no, there's no way around it. You will never be effective for what you do for God uh, in, just, in knowing the Bible and being able to lay out the Bible without a complete understanding of the book of Romans. And uh, I told you that in our first message that the book of Romans is perceived uh, to be one of the hardest books in the Bible. Uh, Part of that is because of the fact that the way that Paul wrote it. And I told you that uh, it's written like a legal document. If you ever read, tried to read the Constitution of the United States or the Declaration of Independence, uh, it's much the same way. In fact, uh, every time there's a ruling by the Supreme Court and they go back to the Constitution, or there's a law that is based on being constitutional, there are a number of universities around this country that uh, host what they call legal scholars, constitutional scholars, constitutional lawyers, that their whole life is spent trying to interpret what the founding fathers meant in what they said when it came to writing of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Romans uh, is a lot like that. Romans is basically uh, our constitution of Christianity. It's certainly the New Testament handbook for Christian doctrine. That's why Paul writes it the way that he does. But the key to understanding it, really, is the outline that God has put in the book itself. I've told you, and we're going to start looking at those here in the next couple of weeks, that, that every book in the Bible, the Bible itself, we talked about rightly dividing the word of truth. Every book in the Bible has a natural dividing outline that makes it easy for you to grasp, understand, and retain. God never intended to write a book that man could never get a hold of. He intended to write a book that was not scholarly, but a book that was practical. A book that any man or woman could reach in there without anything past a sixth grade education and get everything that God wanted them to have. That's the Bible that God gave us. And without that biblical outline or being able to break it down biblically, and then you add to that the style of the writing in its language, and it, it looks to be hard. But the key is it, 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 of it is just simply getting that natural breakdown. 
I even think the importance of it's where it's placed in the canon of Scripture. The word canon of Scripture, you'll hear that a lot. That just simply means the books of your Bible. That's called a canon. <laughs> Not like one you shoot off on 4th of July, but a canon of Scripture is a collection of books. And I think that the book of Romans, its placement is absolutely crucial in understanding how the New Testament lays itself out. And you've heard me say it before. Basically, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all deal with the events that uh, deal with the first coming of Christ. And the book of Acts, which is the next book, basically deals with the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament and from the nation of Israel to the church. Those books are basically your historical books in the New Testament. But then the next book placed there is Romans. And how important is that? By the end of the book of Acts, the transition has been made from the Old Testament to the New Testament, to the Jew to the Gentile. It's all been completed. So then he puts the book of Romans, and in the book of Romans, he now lays out and defines for you and for me everything that the church is now going to believe and it's going to operate from now that we have left the Old Testament system and we've come into the New Testament church age. Everything now changes based on Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. And so the book of Romans is placed after the historical books and it brings you up to the point where uh, it begins to define for you and for me what the church is all about. Then what happens? Then we have Paul begins to write in the order of the books to the churches. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Then what does he do? Then he writes to New Testament Christians within this church structure that he just laid out in Romans. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. You're going to find that, uh, uh, and here's really the key. Everything he writes... Everything that Paul writes to the churches, everything he writes to the individuals, everything that he tells them that they do, what they're to believe, and what they are to now practice is based on a doctrine that he has established in the book of Romans. If you can get that thought in your mind and you can hold on to that, that when you look at your New Testament and you just lay out all the books, say you could lay out Matthew to Revelation right on the floor, and you could look at those books laid out, that's what you have to begin to do. You have to see how those books are divided up. And you will see that the book of Romans, its placement in the order of the books in the Bible is absolutely crucial to giving you and me the understanding that everything Paul writes past Romans is built on a doctrine that he established in the book of Romans. It's an incredible. Romans is the foundational book for what you and I believe as New Testament Christians. Thursday night, we started to come through, uh, you know, this Thursday night, we're going to start coming through the, the books of the Bible. And we're going to see how that uh, uh, the Bible itself and then the books of the Bible lay itself out. I showed you, and you ought to already have this, but if you don't, you get one free today. Romans, the breakdown from Romans is absolutely crucial to understand the book. And I showed you that Romans is basically divided up, rightly divide the word of truth, in five categories. The first category will be chapter 1 through chapter 5. Now, at some point, you need to put this at the beginning of your Bible in Romans. So that when you open up the book of Romans, and you see the first page, that you have it right there. 
that you can see the outline. So if you're going to read Romans, teach Romans, study Romans, or whatever, that that outline is always there. In time, you, would, you remember that outline. It'll become second nature to you, as in time you will with every book of the Bible. But the first section is chapter 1 through chapter 5. That section, I told you, was called the historical section. There, he talks about what God was doing with the Jews and the Gentiles in the Old Testament. And he covers that all the way up in the first five chapters. Then chapter 6 through chapter 8. That's where God deals with the Gentile church and how he lays out everything that we believe is now changed and altered because Christ died on the cross. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that the New Testament church goes into effect at the death of the testator. That would be Christ. So when Christ died on the cross, everything now is beginning to change coming from that Old Testament to the New Testament. The book of Romans is the book that systematically breaks itself down to show you and me what God was doing historically, what God now is doing with the church in the doctrinal section that lays out the fundamental doctrine by what we believe, And then we come into chapter 9 through chapter 11 in our third section. And what was that one? That was the prophetic section. In that section, he shows you and I that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. In that section, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, here's what he does. In chapter 9, he talks about why the nation of Israel lost the blessings of God that God had for them. He goes through their disobedience and their, and their forsaking the law that God gave them in chapter 9. He shows you every reason that they got into the problem they got into. And gives us some really good Old Testament examples. What happens in chapter 10? Chapter 10, he shows us that because of Israel's rejection in chapter 9, that the gospel has now went to the Gentiles. And that's where we go to win somebody to Christ. When you lead somebody to Christ, you take them down the Romans road. You go to Romans chapter 3, it talks about all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's nothing to do with good, no, not one. You go to Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then you finally come to Romans chapter 10. And Romans chapter 10 is the salvation for you and me as the Gentiles. It says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved in verse 13. It says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's Romans chapter 10. And then we have Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 shows you and I that, that even though the gospel has went to the Gentiles, that God's not finished with the Jew. And Romans chapter 11 is the great chapter on God restoring the nation of Israel. So you have chapter 9, shows you how the Jews got messed up. Chapter 10, that it went to the Gentiles and our salvation is found there. And then back to chapter 11, that God is not finished with the Jew and someday is going to restore them. And that's how that section works. Now that, that breaks down the whole book of Romans for you uh, when you just get that together. Chapter 12 through chapter 15. The great practical section. There's where we find uh, our relationship as New Testament Christians to everything. Chapter 12, we find our relationship to the unsaved world. What are we to be to the unsaved world? Romans chapter 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a what? Living sacrifice. That's what we are to be to the world. Chapter 13, it talks about our relationship to our government and the authorities that are over us. 
great chapter we looked at. We went through the whole concept of our own country and the founding of our country and the principles it was founded on. In chapter, uh, in chapter uh, 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 14 and 15, we saw the great practical chapter. We just finished chapter 15. We saw in chapter 14 uh, that how we're to get along with other Christians. In chapter 15, we saw the concept, the ministry that we are to have uh, to, other, uh, to other Christians. Everything was right there. Now we've come to chapter 16, and chapter 16 is our fifth section. And in chapter 15, he basically closes out his book. And that's really what I want to talk to you about today. I decided not to break this chapter down uh, like we have in the past because uh, it's something that I think we need to look at and we can accomplish what we want to accomplish by looking at it uh, in its entirety and, 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 and breaking this chapter down. You know, when I was a young man starting into the ministry, um, I, I told you guys Thursday night that as far as I'm concerned, the model for you learning your Bible and a model for you getting to the point in your place where point in your place place in, in your life where you really have a good handle on the Bible. I think it's back there in First Kings chapter six and seven. And I told you that back in First Kings six and seven, you have the place where Solomon built the temple. Now we know that the temple in the Old Testament, and you heard me say this many, many times, the temple in the Old Testament was the place that God got the honor and glory out of, that in the Old Testament scenario, that all the world, and you see it in the Queen of Sheba, you see it in Psalms, it talks about all the nations that were coming in and going to that temple and looking at the glory of God. It's a lot like going to Washington, D.C., uh, now, I know Washington, D.C. is about as corrupt as you could get, and it's just as, but I still think Washington, D.C. is probably the neatest place to go, simply because there's so much history there. Uh, it, there's just so much history there. And uh, you walk through there, and the Smithsonian Institute is great, and I love the Marine Corps, uh, you know, uh, thing there, uh, with the putting a flag on Iwo Jima, and uh, Jefferson's home, and, uh, and uh, Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Memorial, and all of those things. It's a really neat place to go. Why is it? Because it's where our country began. But you know, when people come to the uh, Washington, D.C. for the first time, they want to see all those things, but the number one thing that they want to see, which really represents who we really are in our form of government, was the White House. They have tours that you can go through the White House. And people just line up, and you got to make a reservation, the White House, the Capitol. That's where people are drawn to. Why? Because everything you see around this world when you think about America, you think about that, that White House. I think it would have been a terrible thing just from the, from the historical aspect in 9-11 when the terrorists struck. You know that last plane that crashed there in Pennsylvania? It was headed for the White House. That's their target. And uh, they took out the Pentagon. They took out, uh, you know, the Twin Towers in New York. And uh, the last plane that crashed in that field because some brave Americans decided to storm the cabin and, and take it over and put it into the ground instead of the, where it was going, that was headed for our capital. I think it would have been an absolute terrible thing. I mean, the whole thing was a terrible thing. But I think it would have been an absolute terrible tragedy to lose the thing that symbolizes in our country what this country is, and that's the White House. And yet, think of that in the sense of what it was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they didn't have a White House. In the Old Testament, the center of all that Israel did was the temple. 
And just like the center of our country that we think about as the White House for us, for the nation of Israel, that's where uh, the seat of Israel's power was. Now, in our country, that, the White House is not a religious symbol. It's a political symbol. But in the nation of Israel, they're not a democracy. They're a theocracy. And a theocracy is where God is king. And so their, their, their politics and their religion was all wound up in one, and it was found in the temple. And that temple back there represented everything that the glory of God was. And yet Solomon, when he built that, the Bible tells you that he started it and it took him seven years to build that temple. Now, I've looked at that and I've thought of that many, many times and I see the pattern there. Personally, in my own mind, I think that's a, that's a key to a lot of things. I read you know it or not, we preach and teach out of the King James Bible, 1611. You know, the King James Bible went forth to be done in 1603, and it was finished in 1611. It took God seven years to put his Bible out the way that it took seven years to build that temple. You know what I believe? I believe that you give me any young men and young ladies, I believe you give me anybody who really wants to study the Bible, and I believe that you can get that down to the point that you have what I call a working knowledge of the Bible. If you'll give it your attention and give it your time and make it the focus of what you're going to do. Uh, if you put the same dedication in it that, that they did in building the temple back in, in Solomon's time, I believe that you can have that Bible down in a seven-year period. I really do. In fact, I, I told them Thursday night in my own life, that was the format that I was taught. And uh, I even broke it down in the years of what you should try to accomplish in those years. And it was a thing where uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great thing for me. Along about the third year, going into the fourth year of my training, I started to study character studies in the Bible. The first three years was getting the basics, the books down. I got it laid out in, in my Bible there. But along about the end of the third year into the fourth year, as I had a handle on the Bible now, one of the next things that I began to study was the characters in the Bible, the character studies. Every man and woman in the Bible will show you something about yourself. Every man and woman in the Bible will show you something about what you and I should be. And I'll never remember, i never forget, I, was, I knew by that time that God had called me to the pastor. And I knew that, that by that time that God was going to use me in ministry. And I knew by that time that God had his hand on my life. And I began to look at the things and I began to realize that God put the men and the women in the Bible that I could find my way and understand by seeing their attitude of heart, the things that they did. The things that God did with them and taught them and trained them in were the things that I needed to learn. And one of the great men that taught me so much about ministry in the Bible was the Apostle Paul. And I think in Romans chapter 16, in its conclusion of this letter, it's an incredible look inside the mind and the heart of Paul. Someday, some of you young men will minister, you'll pastor. If not in this church, at some place along the line. Very obvious as to me as we're growing as a church and we're spreading out and, and ministering places around the state and in Kansas and wherever we go that it's only a matter of time before the word gets out and other churches start seeking, uh, you know, young men to come and pastor those churches. And this will be the, uh, this will be a watershed that we can put the train the young men up and then send them out as they go. We're not ready for that yet, but it'll come in time as God's timing is always the perfect timing. 
But it's things like this. It's when you see these kind of concepts in a man's life, these are the things that you'll want to learn. And I think in chapter 16, uh, this whole chapter, there's four or five really important things to see. And uh, we're going to try to cover them today. Now, I think the first thing is found in verse 1. And I think this is very instructive. This is something you're going to bump into very quickly if you haven't already. But here's the answer to it. Look at 16.1. Well, let's pray first. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We pray you're blessed today as we come through it. We love you. We thank you for all that you do. And we just love you now in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, look at 16.1. It says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church which is in uh, Circensia. Now, I think it's important for, uh, you say, well, what's important about this verse? I I want you to see something today. I've told you many, many times that heresy is something that creeps in uh, to people's lives. Uh, It creeps into churches. And heresy comes in two forms. Heresy is, uh, one form is heresy that what I call is without the church. That means uh, things that, uh, uh, like water baptism for salvation. That's a heresy. You see, water baptism for salvation teaches that you don't get saved by Christ dying on the cross, that your baptism saves you. And of course, we know that baptism doesn't save anybody. That's what you'd call a heresy without the church. But there's heresies that creep in within a church. One of them is the common concept today that you're all going to get into sooner or later, and that is the aspect of women preachers and women deacons. Because you're going to find today that uh, wherever you go, you're going to find churches that, that, are, that there are women preachers and there are women deacons, and, uh, and, and you're, confu- you're confronted with it. And you know what? Most of you probably sitting here this morning know that it's not right for a woman to pastor. Uh, maybe you're not too sure about a woman being a deacon. But, uh, but probably most of you don't know where it starts and don't know where to go in the Bible to deal with it. Well, I'm going to show you today where that heresy starts. And it starts right in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Let's talk about it for a moment. You're going to learn something today, and this is something you want to get down because it won't be a matter of time before you go to some reunion and Aunt Edna is a pastor of some church, you know, or something like that. So you want to learn why that's not the way that you want to conduct things. Now, and you've heard me say this before. In the Laodicean church, and that's the church that we're in, the last church age before Christ comes back, we see a departure from the Bible. When you lose the Bible, you lose a lot of things. In fact, and I've never taught you this, uh, I'm going to stick it into one of my sermons before we get into 2 Corinthians. When you lose your Bible, in other words, when the devil takes your Bible out of your hand and, and you, you, you don't have a Bible anymore, God's Bible, when you lose the Bible, I don't know if you know it or not, you lose seven things from God. There are seven things that you lose when you lose your Bible, not counting your Bible. When you don't have the Word of God, seven things you lose in your life. And this is the reason why there's so much confusion today uh, about women preachers, women deacons, whatever. It's because that people do not understand that when you lose the book, you don't gain some things, you lose some things. And a departure from the truth will always lead to apostasy. 
And this idea of women, women preachers and deacons and women pastors, uh, let me say something to you first of all. Within the New Testament church, there were only two offices. Within the structure of the church, and the church, the New Testament church is laid out in the book of Ephesians, it's laid out in First and Second Timothy, it's laid out in the Paul, books that Paul wrote. It only has two offices. The office of a pastor, which in the Bible is called a bishop, and the office of a deacon. And you're going to, and the only third one would be, before the church started, would be the office of an apostle. But there are no apostles today. The apostles died out as the church became into existence. And uh, most people think that uh, there's apostles today. And there are no apostles today. There are, you're, if you're saved this morning, you should be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There are disciples, but there are no apostles. The apostles was an office given early on in the Bible that had a specific function to deal with the nation of Israel. When the transition took place, the apostles died off and there wasn't any more. But there are two offices in the church. One of them is the office of being a pastor, which I am, and the office of being a deacon, which some of you are. And those are the only two offices. Now, first of all, you're going to find that when the first deacons are called in Acts chapter 6, that they are all men. There wasn't a woman in the mix. And then you're going to find in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul lays down to young Timothy the rules for the deacons and the pastors. And you're going to find that they're all male. The Bible says a deacon and a pastor has to be a husband of one wife. Kind of tough if you're a woman. Well, maybe not today, but it was 100 years ago. But uh, it has to be a husband of one wife. Let me ask you the obvious. Does it not bother you, and maybe you don't even think this way, does it not bother you that the issue of women pastors and women deacons never came on the scene till about a little after 1900? Does it bother you that this was not an issue in the 1800s? You don't have any, uh, you don't have, I mean, you have, you, the when, women who do show up are looked at as crackpots. Ellen, uh, Ellen White, who started the seven-day disadvantages group, uh, she's a woman. But she's looked at as a crackpot. There are no legitimate, recognized, bona fide women uh, up till about 1900 or after anywhere in church history. Did that bother anybody? Why is it that it suddenly began to creep up in around 1900 or thereafter and it steadily progresses till we have almost every Protestant denomination today recognizes not only women pastors, but recognizes women deacons. And most of God's people, even if they don't think it's right, they don't know why it's not right. And even the ones who know it's not right probably couldn't take you to the Bible and show you why. Well, I'll show you this morning. Now, the reason why, first of all, ladies, and don't take this personal, the reason why 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 through 15, talks about that a woman can never pastor or she can never be a deacon in the respect of being an authoritative position over men. Now, you can be that position if you're married, but not as a pastor or a deacon. I'm just kidding. Is The bottom line is, is because... The Bible goes back to all the biblical foundational stuff. The Bible says that because the woman was deceived first when the devil came down to deceive Adam and Eve, he came to Eve. And when he came to Eve, Eve was the one that was deceived. And from that point on, the Bible says that from that point on, the woman's desire will be toward her husband. What does that mean? It means that she's going to be under his authority... (coughs) 
in, in the biblical sense. And from that point on, the woman is labeled as a weaker vessel. Now, that is not in a derogatory term. I believe that a woman, when she works in the workforce, I think that there's many jobs that she does better than a man. Personally, I don't have a problem with a woman even being president if she's a strong leader. I mean, some people don't like that. I I don't have a problem with that. Why, England was the greatest she ever was under two women queens, Victoria and Elizabeth. And both of them would tell anybody in the papal office where to head in any time that she needed to. And uh, so I don't even have a problem with that. So you're not listening to some male chauvinist today. I mean, uh, I think women are very important. If I didn't have a mother, I wouldn't even be here today. So, I mean, I understand, see? So you understand where I'm coming from. I'm talking about in a biblical sense. I, very obviously, I don't, think that, I don't think women have a place in combat. I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. You know, the Israeli, Israelis tried putting women in combat. And it's something in America never, because we are so screwed up in our country. You know, we put women into combat scenarios. Uh, the Israelis tried that. And they found out it didn't work. You know why it didn't work? Because they found out that when a woman got wounded or a woman got hurt, the male guys were three times more likely to get shot or kill themselves because everybody ran over to the woman to try to help her. And when it's a man, if a man gets his leg blowed off, you call for a medic. When a woman gets her leg blowed off, hey, it's a natural thing, unless it's your ex-wife, but it's a natural thing. Could you imagine being in the military and being a lieutenant and you have your ex-wife in your thing? You're on point today. I was on point yesterday and you'll be on point tomorrow. How long will we be on point? Till you ain't here to be on a point anymore. I mean, it wouldn't work. And they found that it did not work. Now, I think that, I mean, uh, I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with any of those things, but I think there's things, I mean, if you're in a combat situation and, uh, you know, your line gets breached and they start coming over the fence and you're a 109-pound sweetheart little gal and you lose your weapon, all you got is your K-bar on your, on, your, on your belt and your guy you got to take on is 210 pounds, it ain't going to probably work out for you. I mean, there's just some things that are common sense things. But common sense isn't too common anymore in our country, but that's just the way it is. And so there's lots of things that a woman does, and I think she does better than a man. I really do. And I think if she works in the workforce, she ought to get paid. This idea of paying her less because she's a woman is ridiculous. But when it comes to the church and the offices in the church, based on the Bible precepts of the fall coming all the way through, being established all the way back in the book of Genesis... The Bible never allows women to be in a place of authority uh, because of the fact that she is the weaker vessel. And, um, you know, I, 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 in that state, you've got to be careful. Now, how did all this start? How did all this start? And you need to learn this today because uh, you're going to be faced with this. This is something that I'm faced with all the time. I preached a funeral one time where... You know, I got out of the hearse, and when you get out of the, go to a funeral, when you go to the graveyard, uh, you know, you, you walk up and you always lead the casket over to where the graveside is. That's just standard procedure if you do a funeral. And uh, I did a funeral one time where the woman, uh, uh, the church, that the, the woman, uh, the family asked me to do the funeral, and the woman there was a pastor. And so I walk up to the hearse, and this nice, sweet little lady comes up, and she introduces herself, and she informed me that she was the pastor of the church, and she was going to walk over to that with me. And I said, that's fine, that's fine. I mean, you're going you're gonna to be faced in it. Now, I didn't look at her and say, hold up a minute, you know, the Bible says, you didn't get into that. You know, you just roll with the flow. 
But there's going to be times when you're going to be faced with some issue that somebody's either going to ask you or you're going to be at work and somebody's going to say, well, I like my church because they got a woman pastor. I mean, you're going to be faced with that. So you just need to understand. This is part of putting your Bible together. Understanding why things are the way they are. Now, how did this all start? Well, first of all, I told you that I guess if you want to put a date on it, you will go back to 1888. Why is 1888 important? Well, in 1888, here's what happens, and some events began to go in succession since 1988. In 1988, officially in this country, the largest Baptist contingency, which was the Southern Baptist Convention, in Sarasota, Florida, in 1888, they did away with the King James 1611 authorized version. Up to this point, it was the only Bible on the planet outside of the Roman Catholic Douay Reims. What they did, officially, they made the decree that in 1888, at their convention in Sarasota, Florida, that they were going to dump the King James Bible and accept the RSV of 1888. When that happened, some events began to take place. This country was moving from the greatest period in church history, we've studied it right now on Tuesday nights on church history, into a time of complete apostasy. And it's a time when everything is just upside down. Along with that, we now have two new groups, three new groups that that form out. The first group is what we call, and you'll hear this term a lot, it's called neo-orthodoxy. Now write that down and remember that because you're going to hear that a lot in Christian circles. What is neo-orthodoxy? Well, the word neo means new. Orthodoxy means something that is standard all the way. When I talk about an orthodox Jew, I'm talking about a Jew that follows the, follows the standard Old Testament, never deviates from it. He's orthodox. And of course, that's what the word means. But ah, we got a new orthodoxy. Now that's what we call in literature as an oxymoron. An oxymoron is something that uh, seems to be the same, but it isn't. You can't have a new orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is orthodoxy. If you have a new orthodoxy, that doesn't make any sense because there can be no such thing as a new orthodoxy because orthodoxy is what has been established. What they're doing is establishing a new orthodoxy. Now, the neo-orthodox crowd would be, we would consider them the liberal crowd. Their philosophy began like this, and you can see it to this day. Their philosophy is change the churches, change the preaching, change whatever you got to change within your church as society changes. See, that's neo-orthodoxy. In other words, whatever society goes, the church has to change with that. Hence, if the church, if society accepts homosexuals and lesbians, see where I'm going? The church has to accept homosexuals or lesbians. There's a church down my house not too long ago uh, that is up there on uh, Raytown Road, and it's a, it's, a, it's a neo-orthodoxy church. I can't remember which one it is. But they had a campaign, I mean, you know, obviously to bring people in, and they had signs in the yard, and it says, we're looking for and accept. And it was every pervert you could ever have. The only thing they didn't have up there was child molesters. They had everything else. And obviously, that's neo-orthodoxy. That the Bible changes, preaching changes, as society changes. And of course we get from that the social gospel. That's neo-orthodoxy. And of course you can see how that our church is not neo-orthodox. We believe the Bible never changes. 
We believe what was wrong 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 500 years ago, 100 years ago is still wrong today. We don't change. So you're going to have a conflict. And then you have another, the second group that came in that caused this was a group called neo-evangelicalism. Oh, you hear that a lot today. Neo-evangelicalism simply means evangelical evangelism. It means new evangelism. Well, you know, I don't think there was anything wrong with the old style of evangelism. But here's what neo-evangelism did. And both of these groups start right around the 1900s, right after they lost the Bible. And the neo-evangelism group, their claim to fame is a reconstruction of theology. That is very important. And I don't mean for this to be a history lesson this morning, but if you're going to be effective in dealing with people, you've got to know what you're talking about. The thing that I cannot stand among God's people that have been saved 5, 10, 15, 20 years, if they've been saved so long, they believe certain things, but if you threw them a Bible in their face, they would have a heart attack before they could prove what they believe because they don't know. That is, to me, is despicable uh, for a child of God. You ought to know why you believe what you believe. And the reason why there's no defense of the gospel today in the workplace, there's no defense of the gospel with the unsaved world, because we have no defense. We don't even know why we believe ourselves. Neo-evangelicalism was a reconstruction of theology. What does that mean? It means that up to this point, the Bible was in the hands of the common man. Hence, it produced the greatest period of time in church history. And the Bible was in the hands of the common, ordinary man. A reconstruction of theology was meant to take that Bible back from the common man and put it back into the higher realms of the scholastic, educational world who are now going to keep the truth for all of us. And that's what they did. That's what they did. And that's why you find, a, you find an Ephesus uh, put, and I could, take, I could take the next five hours and almost go through the books in our library back there and show you how that that mindset, those two mindsets, affected even the Bible-believing writers that were going on back in that period of time. But we don't have time for that today. But that's a, that's a great study and lesson in itself. The third group that came along during this time, around 1900, was the Charismatic Movement. The charismatic movement started with a woman, Amy McPherson. The charismatic movement started in, uh, in, uh, at, at a place called Bethel Baptist Church in Kansas, Topeka, Kansas to be exactly. And then from there it moved out to the West Coast at a place called the Azula Street Mission with a female woman pastor evangelist named Amy McPherson Simpson. Those three things began the the breakdown of what Bible Christianity was in its doctrine. The neo-evangelicals are all non-denominational. Somebody, oh, I know who it was. It was a, uh, they're not here today. It was uh, uh, Jim and Marcy. Uh, on Father's Day, Jim went back to his old father's church up in Liberty someplace. And uh, the pastor got up there and, and, and talked about the fact that uh, the reason why that they have such a great love for each other and get along with each other is because they did away with all the different doctrines that separated everybody. See, now there's the, uh, there's the alternative to it. 
You know why we get along together and love each other and get along just fine together? Because we have doctrine that separates us from other people. That's what you're supposed to do. I mean, I don't, and I, I don't know how I get away with it. The Bible says all Scripture was given by inspiration of God and is profitable. The first thing it's profitable for is doctrine. But you know how they get away with it? Because they don't believe the Bible anymore. Or if they find something in the Bible they don't like, they change it. Fifty years later, in the 1950s, after a series of new Bibles had come out, we come out with the Amplified Version. And in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, here it comes. In Romans chapter 16, verse 1, here it comes. A footnote appeared that says that our gal here, little sweetheart Phoebe, was a deaconess. That's the first place you find it. And it's put in a Bible that was recommended by the neo-evangelicals, the neo-orthodoxies, who when they developed their Bible, wanted to get away from a King James Bible as far as they could, and society was falling apart, and now we're going to allow them come in because they're going to put a footnote in there that says Phoebe was the first deaconess. And if you've got an NIV this morning in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, you've got the same exact footnote. As the next 20 and 30 years rolled on from the 1950s, the devil got rid of the Bible completely and totally by 1990 and 2010. So it's accepted in almost every Protestant denomination and Christian circles today, and they, and they don't even know why. Now let me show you something. Let me show you something why every day of your life, Every day of your life, you got to get on your, you should get on your knees and thank God for the church that God has given you. Now, I'm not talking about me. I'm expendable. I'm talking about the church that God has given you. I am just a temporary steward of this church. I will, Jesus doesn't come, I will pass on someday and somebody else will pick up the mantle as Elijah did to Elisha and or Elisha did for Elijah and down it will go and hopefully by the grace of God will keep on going because I've done my job to give you what you need to carry on after I'm not here. It isn't about me, but I'm going to tell you why. You ought to get on your knees every day of your life and thank God for the church that he's allowed you to be part of. And most of you don't even see it nor understand it. And I understand all of that. I'm going to do a radical thing next year, at least twice a year. I've, I, I wrestled with this, and I, I've come to the conclusion that, uh, that where we're at, what we're facing, and what's out there, that it's the only w- way to do it. And next year, two times a year, I haven't decided when yet, I'm going to take every Christian in this church that has been here for two years or under, and you're going to come to church on Sunday morning. Everybody else, two times a year, is going to go out and find you another church. You're going to go out and find out what's out there. Maybe you'll find a better one. I hope so, if that's what you're looking for. But I'm going to end the delusion, the fact that you, we all just take what God is. And not me now. This has nothing to do with me. I take it for granted just like everybody else does. But I'm going to fix it for once and for all. That and, and if you don't come back, God bless you. Maybe that's exactly what you needed. You just needed a little push to get you where you needed to go. But I'm going to tell you something. We take for granted what God has given us here. And I'm going to show you in a moment. 
how that this church, by what it's based on and by what it's taught and by what you get, you don't ever have to wonder about why you believe what you believe or what you believe, or you don't ever have to be faced with anything you don't understand. I'll show it to you. Well, we're going to implement that next year. And I think that will be a good thing. Now watch this. Now watch this. I gave you a little outline a couple of months ago, and some of you use it and got it in your Bibles, but it's a good one. It says, be not deceived, be not disarmed, and be not discouraged. All right? Be not deceived. Now, the standard reason for this teaching of female deacons and pastors, and the standard reasoning for this bad doctrine is that the scholars take the Greek word, and it's the Greek word for the word servant in that verse. And they take that Greek word, and they translate that Greek word as deaconess. Now, it doesn't matter. There does not matter that there is not a Greek text on this planet. Oh, that's, that's too small. There is not a Greek text in the universe that has the Greek word for deacon in it. Every one of them has the Greek word for servant. There isn't a Greek New Testament on this planet that has the Greek word for deacon, deaconess, deaconer, deaconistister, whatever you may be. Every Greek New Testament has the Greek word for servant. It's the neo-evangelicals and the neo neo-orthodox who wanted to change and reconstruct the theology that interpreted that word and that's what scholars do that's why you can't ever trust bible scholars bible scholars for the most part are as crooked as a dog's hind leg i think most of them screw their socks on in the morning you can't ever trust them ever i have been in situations with them for 40 years and in just a handful that I would ever trust beyond farther I could throw them. It's a favorite trick of scholars who want to pass off a demon-infested heresy by doing what they do. Now, I, you've heard me say it all the time, and this is the classic example. You don't need the Greek to learn the Bible. That heresy starts with neo-orthodoxy and neo-evangelicalism. The idea that you need to spend 30 or 40 years of your life studying a language that nobody speaks today so you can have a relationship with God is ludicrous. Guy said one time, but you believe the King James Bible is the word of God in English. And I said, that's true. He says, well, do you know how many people don't speak English in this world? And I says, you believe the King James, the word of God's perfect in the Greek. He said, that's right. I said, you know how many people don't speak Greek today? A lot more than speak English. You don't need the Greek or the Hebrew. It will give you no value whatsoever to the Word of God. The Bible says, We thank God without ceasing. For when you receive the Word of God, which you heard of us, you receive it not as the work of men, but as it is in truth the words of God, which are working effectually in also you that believe. It's your believing that that's the book, that it effectually works in it, in you, and when you don't believe it, it doesn't work in you. Now, I'll show you what I'm talking about. And this is why you ought to get on your knees and thank God for the church you got. You won't, but you ought to. Now, here's what you got. Do you know where that concept of Phoebe being a deaconess first shows up? Do you? Well, it shows up long before 1950. 
It shows up long before 1900 with evangelicals and the neo-orthodoxy. It shows up in the teaching all the way back in the first and the second century. You know who coined the first concept and the first idea that Phoebe was a deaconess? It was two of our old friends back about 100 A.D. in Alexandria, Egypt. It was Origen and Clement of Alexander. Remember those? For those of you who have been through church history, remember those two guys? Who were they? They were the guys that took the pure Greek text out of Antioch, took it down in Alexandria, Egypt, and corrupted it in over 65,000 places, and that text became the Roman Catholic Bible of the Dark Ages, and it became the Bible, a text from every Bible on the market comes from today. That's why that foot reference is in there. Now, see that thing? How many churches would have taught you about Alexandria, Egypt? The corrupt text out of Antioch come, uh, coming into Alexandria, being corrupted. Who would even have taken the time to talk to you about, about uh, Origen or Clement of Alexandria or Pantanus? Who would have ever got that level on the Bible? I'll tell you why. Because you need to know that. I didn't teach it because it's me. I teach it because somebody taught it to me. And the Bible says the same things I've committed to you. Commit the faithful men. And you better pass it on to somebody else. Or you'll wind up having a woman preacher. Or a woman deacon. Tell you the truth, some of the women we got probably make better than some of you guys. But it won't happen. That's where it comes from. In other words, the source for that teaching was in the same place that corrupted the New Testament text in over 65,000 places. I don't need to hear one other thing. I don't need to see the Greek word. I don't need to check the manuscripts. I know from my Bible because of the two lines that I've taught you and the way the Bible lays itself out. If Origen or Clement or Pantanus or Philo or any of that crowd had anything to do with it, I'm out. I'm out. Because God never had anything to do with that line. That's why you don't find it for 1,900 years. You don't find it till this country dumped the Bible and the neo-orthodoxy and the neo-evangelicals and the charismatic got together and pulled it all together. Why, if you took the women preachers out of the charismatic movement today, you wouldn't have a charismatic movement. That's the way she works, fellas. Those are things that you need to know in the day and age that we live in. You need to know why. You need to know where it starts. And that's one of the little blockbuster verses in there, boy, that people read that and Pam Pastor will get up and she say, Now, Phoebe was our first deaconess. And that's why we have everybody just says, Oh, that is so, you're out of your mind. You see, you got to get some steel in your backbone at some point about finding out why you believe what you believe. I don't know what to tell you. Now, here's the next thing we see. And this is where we get into the mind of Paul. And this is some good stuff now. You needed to have that, but this is, this is, this is where we live now today. And I'm telling you something, guys, and you the young ladies, you can learn a lot from Paul, not only by the books he writes, but by his attitude and the way that he conducted his ministry and his style of ministry. 
You know, I know that Paul was not a pastor. Paul was an evangelist. And here's something else you need to know. This is another term that is all messed up today. We think of an evangelist today as somebody that goes from church to church to church to church and holds evangelistic meetings. Oh, I don't have a problem with that. If there was a real hellfire damnation evangelist, I'd have him. I'm not, I'm not criticizing that, nor do I have a problem with that. But in the Bible sense, that's not what an evangelist is. Paul is not a pastor. He's not your model pastor. The model pastor for you in the Bible is Timothy. And then you can add Philemon and Titus to that to round out the whole scope of it. But Paul is an evangelist. And what an evangelist did in the New Testament times is he went place to place and started churches. And that's what Paul did. All the churches he wrote there, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philemon, you know, not Philemon, but uh, uh, Thessalonians and Galatians and Ephesians, those are all churches that he started. And he would go into town. He'd get a job being a tent maker. He'd make his tent, make his, get, his, get his money together. And then what he would do was is he would, he would, uh, he would start a church. He'd train up somebody in time to take over that church, then he'd move on to someplace else. That's a biblical evangelist. That's what a biblical evangelist is. But you can learn some things from Paul. Because Paul ministered to people. And the ministry is people. We've been looking at that in chapter 14 and chapter 15. Now let me tell you the first thing that I learned from Paul early on in my life. And I thank God that I had a man in my life that held me accountable and, and forced me into the right mindset of things. And the first thing he taught me, and he didn't teach me as much by telling me this as he did by example, but I learned this from studying Paul's life and the great character studies about the third or fourth year that I got into my seven-year plan and and through my own pastor's life. And he taught me this. In ministry, never take the people who minister with you, who labor with you, for granted. God's going to give you people in the ministry who help you carry the load. They're here when the work needs to be done. They work with, you know, as the church grows, and and the older I get, I can't do everything that I used to do. Hey, there was a time in my life when I ran everything. And maybe that wasn't a good thing, but that's what it was. I was young. I had all the energy in the world. I could go, you know, 20 hours a day and sleep for four hours and be back at it in the morning. Can't do that anymore. And so what God does, the older you get, the smarter you get. And you start to take the people that are around you and who buy into your ministry that, that do for you what you did yourself. In other words, they understand your heart. They understand your vision. And you, they, they, they're there with you. And they, they, they grow. They see the ministry growing. They see the people coming in. And they're, they're, they're part of it. Like some of you guys on Thursday night, when I was teaching that, I saw some of you guys out there and afterwards showing them what you had done in your Bible. That's what I'm talking about. You recognize what we're trying to do here. You recognize what I'm trying to do here. And you become part of that. And when you get people who help carry the load, not just financially, but carry the load ministerially, and you're there, and you're working with people, and you're helping me. And when somebody comes in and needs something, you're right there. There's a, there's a number of you that on Thursday night or Sunday morning, when, when if I need something with somebody, instead of where I used to have to go deal with it myself, now I can just call a number of you, and I know it'll get done the way it's supposed to get done. People like that in your life, you never take them for granted what they've done for you. You never get, and I think this is one of the biggest failures that pastors make, 
in ministry, you never take the people who minister with you and labor with you for granted. And I'll tell you something else. The second thing, you always take care of those people who put their necks on the line and share the burden of ministry with you. You never forget who they are, that God gave them to you to help accomplish his plan that he gave me to do. And you never, never, never forget who they are. Remember last Saturday when the men's meeting and the women's meeting? I took you back to the book of Numbers and I showed you the organizational structure of the ministry. And I showed you that by the order of the tribes setting themselves up around the ark, the three different aspects of ministry in every church, right in the middle of that circle was the ark of the covenant. That Ark of the Covenant was the, I've already told you, it was the, it was the essential part of Israel's relationship with God. Everything that God did existed around, in, and in, in that Ark. And then you had the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, they camped in a circle. Bullinger, if you have a Bullinger study Bible, he lays it out, he even puts the tribes uh, in the right order. And, he, and around that in a circle, there was the, there was the 12 tribes that camped out uh, away from that ark. But inside the middle of that, you had the three families, remember? You had the Kohathite family. You had the Gershomite families. And you had the Miriamite families. What was their job? Their job was to take care of the ark. Their job was to take it down, set it up, wherever that ark went for 40 years in the wilderness, picture of the world. Those three families focused on the job that they had to tear it down, get it up. They took care of that concept of God to the place that it got where it was permanent when David took Jerusalem. And then you had the outer people who never really got involved with the three families and what they did. And then there was a third element, wasn't it? In Numbers chapter 11. Remember? The mixed multitude. Hey, and I told you. Every time God had a problem with the nation of Israel. And without exception. Every time that God had a problem with the nation of Israel. It was always with the tribes that had camped as far as they could get away. From the central thing that was going on. In all of the years, God never had one issue with the, with the Kohathites, with the Jeshemites, with the Miriamites. Not one issue. You know why? Because they were too busy, involved in the absolute work of God to get caught up in all that the outer tribe were doing. When God had a problem and he came out and smited them, it was to the uttermost parts of the camp. It was where the tribes that were part of Israel, they just did not want to get down where it was really the work and the hot stuff was going on. And boy, in any church you find the same thing. It's the families in this church who are here and carry the load, who do the work that follow through with everything that goes on that in any church that makes the church what God needs it to be. And everybody else is just kind of on the peripheral. They're just kind of out there in la-la land someplace. And then they get involved with a mixed multitude. And we saw the mixed multitude. We defined them, didn't we? Always complaining. When it comes to the manna, the supernatural food that God brought down to them, all they could see was this old dry manna. They remembered all the stuff that they had in Egypt type of the world. The garlic, the leeks, the melons. 
And then they put the great word in there that we got free, freely. You have forgotten you were a bond slave. Your grandfather, your father, and his father were crushed under the stones to build the pyramids freely. And you'll find, as I told you, in any church ministry, I don't care where you go, anywhere in this world, you'll find the church has broken down into those three. You'll find the, the Ark of the Covenant, the priesthood represents Christ and what he's doing. The three families who saw what was happening and said, we want to be part of it. We want to be in that. We're going to do that. And they never had time to get caught up in all the crap that goes on because their focus is in the heartbeat of that temple. It's the people who like to maintain their spirituality, who like to carry the big King James Bible, who like to talk real loud how spiritual they are, that are living in the outer camp as far as they can get away from the action. And then the old mixed multitude works its way in. Let me tell you something. There's an order of a chain of command in any ministry. This church belonged to God, no question about it. God called me and gave it to me as his steward. A lot like Paul running around in his ministry talking about the gospel that Jesus Christ had given to him to the Gentiles, calling it my gospel. Paul understood that it was his and he was a steward of it. He was very protective of what God had given him. And then God sends you here to us, to me, to be part of this ministry, to help accomplish what God has called us to do. Some do, some don't. Some stay, some have it, some lose it in time, whatever. But we both have to follow the same standard in ministry. And, you know, as time goes on, you know, you see these things uh, unfold themselves. But Paul never took the people God had given him to get the job done for granted. And, you know, when you come down through the text here, and this is what's really important, you know that there's three people groups that he addresses here, and it's the same three people groups that we have in our church? Incredible. These are the things you learn from looking into the mind of Paul. You know, the first things he, he, he makes reference to is the single women. Now, that's Phoebe in verse 1, and then down in verse 6, he talks about Mary. And you know what? He understands that, that, that it takes a three-point composite to make up a church. And the single women in any church, in any ministry, add an incredible dimension to any work or ministry. You give me all the women who have the balance of being lovely and kind and gracious and godly, given to hospitality, who fulfill all the virtues of Proverbs chapter 31, but yet has the steel in their backbone of the first century centurion, uh, I'll take everyone I can get. I mean, the fact that you're single, you're free to have more time to give, to do what you, God has called you to do. There may be a time in your life, and probably will, where you get married, and you come to the point where now you don't have the time. But seeing yourself as a valuable tool within the arsenal of this church, a valuable tool, look at this church like a toolbox. A toolbox that you open a lid, and for every job that needs to be done, there is a tool. And the tool of single women in that toolbox is absolutely invaluable if they recognize what they have. Then there's a second group he recognizes. Those are married couples. Uh, This one here is incredible because he makes a reference to Priscilla and Aquila. 
Uh, look at verse 4. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also unto the churches of the Gentiles. Now, if you go on down to the next verse, it tells us that they are a husband and wife couple. He's a pastor. And they have a church in their home in verse 5. Now, this couple is a special couple to Paul because he mentions them several times. He mentions them again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He mentions them again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19. I think the most noted point that they're mentioned is in Acts chapter 18, verse 24 to 26, what really shows you what they're all about. Let me tell you that story. There's a man who comes in. His name is Apollos. Now, Apollos had not heard yet that Christ had died on the cross. And Apollos is one of those Jews that the only thing he knew was John's baptism when John the Baptist came. And I don't know where he'd been or what he'd been doing, but he hadn't heard anything about Christ dying on the cross. So he comes into a town. And he, somebody says, hey, you want to go to church? And they say, yeah, where do you go? Well, we're going over down here to Aquila and Priscilla's home, and uh, they have a church in their home. Oh, yeah, I'd like to fellowship with, with some believers. So they go down there in the church, and they, they're all testifying and giving a testimony. Aquila stands up, and he starts talking about John's baptism. He starts talking about how that if he hasn't been baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist has been dead for 25 years. And you know what the Bible says? When Aquila and Priscilla heard it, they took him aside and explained the word of God to him more perfectly. They're straight on their doctrine. This is a hot couple. This is a couple that really understand what's going on. And I'll tell you what, Aquila and Priscilla remind me of many of you. And I feel the same way about you that Paul felt about them. I mean, there's some of you, brother and sister, that you just, uh, this thing, uh, if, if, if you left the church, it takes six people to replace you. I, mean, I don't have to worry about on Thursday night that if somebody wants to get saved. I know I got a handful of people out there that can handle it on Sunday morning. You understand what God is doing here. This thing is not just a ministry. It's the most important thing in your life. You know, the Marine Corps. Bill understands this, as John does, and some of you guys were in the Marines. It's the 4th of July. Let's wave the flag for a moment. Who, got, who visitors got flags today? Anybody got them? Good. Honey, would you wave that just for a minute before I'm going to say what I'm going to say here? We'll wait. Go ahead. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Marine Corps have a slogan, Semper Fidelis. It means always faithful. Always faithful. That needs, even though that is the that is the creed of the United States Marine Corps. It ought to be the creed of every child of God on this planet when it comes to ministry. If God puts you in a New Testament local church, if it's the right one, give it everything that you've got. If it's not the right one, go find the right one. But in some place, do something, okay? Always faithful. This isn't about, this isn't something we do on Sunday. I tell people all the time when they come in with their problems and they try to pay me for counseling. I'll sit down and I'll try to work out their marriage and they'll pop out their checkbook and they'll say, how much do I owe you? And I say, you don't owe me nothing. And they say, well, the last guy we went to charged $150. I said, did he help you? No. Did I help you? Absolutely. I said, keep your money. He said, well, let me pay you something. I said, look, pal, let me tell you something. If I charged you for what it cost to give you the information I did today, there wouldn't be enough money in the world to pay for it. Because that cost was paid on Calvary. 
And all I did is show you what God's Spirit wants to do in your life because of his death on the cross. Besides, there's something else. Those guys do it because that's their living. I do it because it's my life. And that ought to be the way you look at ministry. You don't do it just because of the fact that it's something that you do. You do it because it's your life. You can't live without it. You know, I, I, I don't run like I used to. In fact, I have one of them little carts that they go to the grocery store and you plug in and ride around the block. And I try to get five or six miles in a week. There's times I used to go five, six miles at a time. Those days are long gone. But I know what, I, I, feel, I recognize that, you know, I got one body to serve the Lord with, so I better keep it in the best shape I can because I don't get, to get another one and I don't want to screw myself up with what I got to do, you know, because I did it. If God gives me some disease and takes me home, that's him, but I'm not doing it on my own. But, you know what, I, I look at that thing and I think to myself, you know what, and some of you who you fairly active in working out and running, you know it's true. I do, I do something every day. If I miss one day, I feel out of sort. If I miss two days, I really feel weird. And if I miss three or four days of getting into my routine, <clears throat> you know what? I'm really out of whack. Nothing is right in the world. Everything's upside down. I'm cranky. I, I, mean, I, have, I feel like I, I weigh 600 pounds. Everything, is, everything feels like I'm bloated. It just feels like I've got anxiety. It's just like I've got pressure. And you know what? And, and that's the way it ought to be with ministry. If you miss, if you, it, 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 see, it's that way because I've done that now for 35 years. I, my body doesn't know any different. If I don't give it what it's supposed to have in the morning of running and loosening itself up, it starts screaming. Why aren't we doing this? I don't care that you're sick. Puke along the way. Let's get it done, you see. But it, my body has been trained to the point, and your body will be too, that if you don't follow through it and you start missing it, something's out of whack. You know, it ought to be that way in your life in ministry with the Bible. If you stay out of the Bible two or three days and you're, it doesn't bother you, if you don't disciple somebody, you're not working with somebody, you're not doing something in ministry with somebody, and it doesn't bother you, it's just the norm, it's okay, that you can always rationalize it and excuse it away or do whatever you want to do, don't you know that that's not right? If it's your lifestyle, that's not the way it's to be. Try going a day without eating. Two days. Well, in America, go an hour. You know how weird you feel when you miss a meal? Well, you ought to feel just as weird when you miss ministry. But we don't. We don't. Now then you have single men. In verse 21. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy. My work fellow, Lucius and Jason, and so and so uh, Sipater, my kinsman, salute you. Now here's another great thing, and that's the single young men that God puts in any ministry. You know, guys, you really have something that I think is a. You really have something that I think is a valuable tool, And I think that valuable tool is the fact that uh, you young men who live godly lives, you young men and young ladies who live godly lives can be a great role model to the young people coming up in this church. 
And I know that's true in many of your lives because I see what you do with them when we're all out together. I watched you guys last night. And you know what? When we couldn't play ball and got rained out, we went over to eat, and then we went out and got ice cream. And what did I see? I see you guys taking those young guys out there and, 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 having, and making them feel important. You know what? The world's going to have an influence on them. And they're either going to follow the right kind of people or the wrong kind of people. And it's not hard. It really isn't. It's really not hard. It's not hard. All it takes is to have the right kind of young men who portray the right kind of values and young men will follow them. It's just that simple. You take a young man under your wing and encourage him and when he's having struggles, when he can't talk to his parent and he talks to you, you know, that's a valuable thing. Because if he doesn't have you to talk to and he doesn't have his parent to talk to, he's going to talk to the wrong person. And I believe that in every church, God puts men just like that. Young men that can, got the energy, that can do it. I watched you guys out there throwing the football last night. And every time you dropped the pass, you had to drop down and give you 20 push-ups. See, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. And those young guys get out there and they want to be like you. They see you catch the ball, run fast, do all these things, hit the ball. They want to be like you. Well, all we got to do is just take it one step further and put the godly character of the word God in your life and then want them to be like you in that area. Who said this was hard? The hard thing is getting people to see it. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, and the beauty of old men is their gray head. You see, young men who have the strength of youth, but add to that the character of God. I'm not interested in the fact that you're just young. I'm interested in the fact that you're young and you love the Lord and you know the book. I'm not interested in you getting up and tell how many veins you stuck your needles into when you were out there in the world taking drugs. I don't care about that. I do know, care about the fact that you know where to take them in the book and show them what God has done for them. I'd rather have them take you, you show them what God has done for you and let you be the role model and then even telling them what God will do for them. But that's what it takes. These three dimensions are the key to every church. And if you look around in our church, we've got a very good balance of it. Very good balance of it. Now these people were people that God sent to Paul to get the job done. They believed in God's call to him and became vital to his work that God gave him to do. And I, and, I, and, I, and I say it all the time. Many of you will never see this church the way it really is, the way God sees it. You know, out in uh, Texas, they have a place called Aberdeen Proving Ground in Aberdeen, Texas. What that is, is that is a military facility. And every new military piece of hardware, weaponry, projectile, what, grenade, whatever is developed... Before it's ever issued to troops in combat, it goes to Aberdeen Proving Ground. They got one of the greatest museums that you've ever seen in your life of the stuff that they've had come through there. What do they do there? They'll take every new piece of military hardware and they'll evaluate it, they'll stretch it, they'll see what it'll do, what it won't do, they'll rate it, and before it ever gets into ever gets into the main line, front line soldiers, that piece of hardware is proven beyond any shadow of a doubt that it's reliable. That's all this church is. It's a proving ground. It's not some place that you come in and you you just do whatever you want to do. But every time some young man or some young lady says, I want to be involved in ministry, and I let them put them in ministry, they're on the hot seat. I watch them. 
I get reports on them. You know why? This is the proving ground. It's all that it is. Bible says, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. I watch how you handle people uh, over you. If I put you in a ministry and there's some guy over you or a couple of guys over you or a girl over you or a couple of gals over you and you're supposed to submit yourself because they have been given a job by me and you go around and badmouth them behind their back, I can't use you. You've proven something to me. You're proving it. You, you, I can't use you. I'm not going to put that element in a, in a situation in ministry. I've learned through 40 years of experience that all that do will come back and bite me. It's a proving ground. It's a place where men and women come in and look at this ministry that God has made me steward of. Hey, you're not going to give an account of it to the judgment seat of Christ. I am. He's not going to pull you over and, and say, what did you do at Old Paz? What were your responsibilities as, as pastor? That's my job. You'll give an account for the youth department being his co-guy in charge, and you'll give an account for your end of it. But in the overall text of it, you know what? In the overall church, it'll be me in the hot seat, not you. Some of you don't understand that. Some of you want to have a church, but you don't want to have any accountability within the church. I don't know what to tell you. You're in the wrong business. If you work for somebody in this ministry and you're under them, you be better be loyal to them and you better back them up. And the first time I catch you shooting your mouth off behind their back to somebody, you're in trouble. As far as ministry here is concerned, mark that down. Underline it. Get a red pencil back there. This church is the training ground. I want to see what you got. I'll give you something to do and watch you what you do. I'll watch how you handle it. I'll watch how you do it. You shoot your mouth off, you want to be in ministry, and then I put you in. I'm going to watch what you do. I'm going to watch how you, it's a proving ground. That's the way it has to be. God sends people here to get a taste of what a New Testament fill has nothing to do with me. I could die tomorrow, Bubba could take over. I could die tomorrow, Kyle could take over. I could die tomorrow, John could take over. I could die tomorrow, and Danny could take over. I could die tomorrow, Jamie could take over. I mean, it doesn't make any difference. There's enough guys here that could handle the load. God sends people to get a taste of a New Testament Philadelphian Bible-based ministry. And some say, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Some say, no, thank you. Fine. I told you a New Testament Bible-based ministry always needed to define itself. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 19 says, confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. You ever try to eat something with a broken tooth? You ever try to walk with a broken foot or a foot out of joint? It's impossible. And a man that has no confidence in the ministry is just the same way. In ministry, and I'll tell you this, guys, and you learn this from Paul, because Paul was a guy who always wanted things defined. Paul's a guy who always wanted to know where he was at in relationship to what was going on. In ministry, you always want things defined for you. It's very important that you see and understand what you have to do and who you have to do it with. You know, ministry is a lot like building an addition into your home. I know many of you have taken on that task. Many of you have hired people to do it. 
and they'll come in and they'll look at it. It's a lot like what we did when we started down here. Three things you can always count on. One, the job will always be bigger than you thought it would be. Two, it's always going to take longer than you thought. And three, it's always going to cost more than you anticipated. And that's pretty much, and that's pretty much what the ministry is. But you always got to keep things clearly defined. It's an absolute necessity. I told you in our Saturday morning meeting, the reason why I like my style of ministry, and not only because it's biblical, but it works. It's designed to find out what you're made of when the shells start coming in. Or you get a little bit of glory. Or you get a little bit of spotlight. It reveals the cracks. My style of ministry won't define people, but rather through a biblical prove-all-things ministry, it clearly laid out people will be defined, people will define themselves. And that's what real ministry is. This ministry, you being here, is simply this. God has a job that he wants you to do. Before you get to that point to do it, you know what you have to do based on the biblical principles? You have to define who you really are. When you go back and look at Timothy being put into ministry, Go back and read it sometime in Acts chapter, I think it's Acts chapter 16. You know what it says about Timothy? It says that he defined himself in ministry before he ever got in it. It's just the way that it has to be. It's like the phrase, Christ-like. You see, when we come through Romans chapter 14 and 15, we now understand what the word Christ-like means. You see, we thought we were Christ-like when we came, didn't we? But after you heard, what, four or five weeks of going through that thing, what God determines is Christ-like, all of us had to look at ourselves and say, I have just been redefined. It's true of all of us. It's why it's so important to always keep the Bible as the single number one thing in your life. We always get to the point where we think better of ourselves than we really are. We always think we're more spiritual than we really are. We always think we're better off than we really are. And we always think we know better than God than we really do. That's what gets us in trouble. I told you uh, Thursday night when I showed you about putting your blank pages in the Bible and I showed you those little outlines that, that I use for devotion stuff. I showed you that one in Matthew where it talks about the two problems we all have as Christians. I didn't say you all, me all. I put my name in there because I, I, that's how I teach it. Two problems I have in, in, in my walk with God. One is getting behind God. The other one is getting ahead of God. The hard part is staying even with him. It's staying even with him. You know what? And I don't know if you noticed this or not. In almost every last chapter of every book that Paul writes, he reminds and remembers those people who helped him and were faithful in God's call into his life. He does it in the last chapter, 1 Corinthians 16. He does it again in the last chapter of Ephesians. He does it again in Philippians 4. Almost the whole last chapter of the book of Colossians, he does it. In 1 Thessalonians, chapter 8 and 9, uh, he lays out, or 1 Thessalonians, eight or nine things he edifies and admonishes of them to keep doing. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he does it again. He does it again at the end of Titus chapter 3. And finally, he uh, does it again in Philemon. And then in Romans chapter 16, he does it again. He just never forgot the people who were there with him to carry the load. 
The people who are with you in ministry, who are there carrying the burden, Sunday morning, Thursday night, in discipleship, in, in being the leaders and helping Treat and train the young ones. The people who from level one to level two to level three who help you carry the burden and the load, not only financially, but physically in the ministry, you never want to forget them. You never take them for granted, the people that God gives you to do the work he's called you to do. I'm going to close with this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. I think Paul gives one of the greatest tributes to one of his men, one of his young men. And I look at those things in that verse there, and I've never taught these to you. But they are the six things that I look for in somebody to be my co-laborer. Oh, I don't expect them the first day you show up. I don't even expect them maybe in the first six months of the first year. But if you're ever going to be part of this ministry of what God has called me to do, and maybe you won't, and that's okay. But if you stay the course and you say that this is where God has brought me and this is what I'm going to do, and we're going to be co-laborers together, then these are the six things that Paul puts in a person's life. There are six things found in that chapter, and these are the things that mark a co-labor in ministry that Paul looked for, and they're the same things that I look for in ministry. You'll always let people define themselves because at the end of the day, you always got to know what to look for. Now, there's another side to this, and we're not going to get into it in a great length. But he says in verse 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine to them uh, which ye have learned and avoid them. For they are such which serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Now there's the other side of ministry. You see, not only does Paul remember and not forget what people have done for him, he also remembers and doesn't forget what people have done to him. And not in a revengeful sense, because there is no revenge with a Christian. Not in an unforgiving of sense, because a Christian ought to be able to forgive anybody for whatever they do, no matter what the situation may be. That's part of being Christ-like. But it's, in a, but it's in a mindset that, that uh, you know who you can trust and who you can't. It's in a situation that he says you mark the... And that's a strange thing. Could you imagine? Could you... I mean, we ought to take that verse out of the Bible. Why, could you imagine marking people, naming them, having them stand up or <laughs> that, that cause division? I'm not saying it shouldn't be done, but I am saying you can't get away with it today. That's how far we've come far from it. Did Paul really mean what he said or was he just kidding? And you're going to find that just as there was people who Paul never forgot what they did for him, there was people in his ministry that he never forgot what they did to him. And you know when you come through that passage in closing here, when you come through that, you realize in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 10, there was a group that says about Paul, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his body presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Imagine somebody saying that about the apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when he's trying to straighten out the church at Corinth, there's a group of people in Corinth who... Now, remember now, Corinth was a church that Paul started. 
and he goes back to the church that he started, to his own church who's having spiritual issues, and they've gotten so puffed up with pride that when Paul comes back, they won't even recognize him as the apostle. And so when Paul comes to the door, they said, do you have any letters of commendation that state who you are? I love Paul's answer. He says, you want a letter of commendation that I'm really of God? Go look in the mirror. You wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for me. But people get that way. They forget. They forget. Truman Dollar told me one time that was one of the greatest things he ever taught me, and I learned a lot from him. He told me something I never forgot. It's absolutely true in ministry. I don't know how many times I'd sit in his office and somebody would hose us over on something, and Truman would, and I'd look at him, and I'm just a young guy, and I'd look at him and I'd say, why did they do that? And he looked at me and he said, I can just see him now sitting back in that chair, taking his glasses off and saying, Bob, learn this. People will never remember what you did for them yesterday. But they're always going to ask you what you can do for them today. Boy, that is so true. That is absolutely true. Don't tell me what I did for you yesterday. What can I do for you today? What can you do for me today? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Demoth hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his deeds. And you're going to find that all down through his life, that Paul, when you look inside the man, he was remembering all of the people and were so precious to him that helped him. The co-laborers, the one that recognized who he was and got on board to help him accomplish what God had accomplished him to do. And he never takes them for granted. But at the same time, and I'll tell you guys something, don't ever forget the ones that hose you. Don't get revengeful. Let it go. Forgive them. Go on with life. But remember that there's people out there who are going to hurt you in ministry. And they're going to try to hurt you in ministry. I think when you go back and, and tally it up, Paul was attacked more by God's people than he ever was from the devil's people. But that's just the way that it is. Let me tell you two things that I've learned from Paul's life, and then I'm closing, I'm done. The first thing is, you and for me, to endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Ministry and leadership is not a place for the spineless. It's not for the place for the people who can't follow a chain of command. And be respectful for that chain of command. The second thing, get a reality check. If people love Paul and people hated Paul, it will be the same with you. If they lied and slandered him behind his back after he left their churches, never to his face, they'll do it to you. Bottom line is this, folks. You've got to realize and understand God has called you to do a job. And that job that he called you to do is going to take the dedication of you making it part of your life. If it's not here, then find some place else you can do it. But that's your job. That's your job. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do.